This is the converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Metsian podcast. I felt like I needed to let that play for a, a little longer because uh, we have a, 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 we're thrilled to have the composer of that, that track, the composer and player and the musician of that track, Adam Spiegel, on the program. But before we get to Adam, uh, we're, let's go around the horn with uh, our brain trust, and, and we're going to start with Mike Lekalance in uh, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. I always say it differently, don't I, Mike? Excuse me, what was that last part? No, I said that I always say your your last name differently. Mike Lecolant, Mike Lecolant. And and it's all good with me. You know what? I've heard at least at least 40 different variations. I'm cool with all of them. Otherwise, all's good in the neighborhood, kid. Uh, and we're going to go all the way up to Connecticut for uh, Rich Sparago, Sparago. Uh, I think I've been pronouncing <laughs> it correctly <laughs> forever. <laughs> You have, and uh, good evening, Sam. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you guys, but, but it's an uncomfortable off day for me because I didn't like the way the series in Philadelphia played out. And it's one of those off days where we're like, oh, I wish there was a game tonight to wash that one out of my system. But, uh, but it's what we do. We have to deal with off days, and we get a chance to do podcasts. It's all good. Well, it looks like we're going to have two Thursdays in a row uh, to to regroup, if you will. And maybe the Mets needed a, a little bit of a, a breather one way or the other. They've played a lot of games in the first few weeks. But without further ado, I'd like to bring on the uh, featured guest of the evening, and that's uh, Metsian-themed composer and uh, musician Adam Spiegel. Adam and I go way back uh, to when we were 10 years old, and, and he even remembers me as a Yankee fan, don't you, Adam? I I certainly do actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the uh, podcast. Yes. We appreciate you being here. I I think my earliest memories of you are in a Yankee hat. Oh God, uh, I, I'm the one who brought it up, <laughs> but don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> so right. Adam, before we get really before we get to. Uh, yeah, before we, we uh, dive into the 2019 New York Mets, uh, you know, we, we always like to start uh, the first time that, that a guest is on the program. We like uh, them not only to shamelessly plug, but kind of give a little background Sorry, of their... Oh, sure, sure. Headset and for the podcast. Oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> Let me know when, when we're good to go. We good to go? We're, we're, we're good to go, yeah. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. So, so what we would like to do uh, at the beginning of uh, the first time a a uh, guest has arrived to the podcast is, uh, be- besides shamelessly plug, we like to talk about their baseball history. So, if you give a background for your your Metsian history, sure. Uh, so, I uh, I used to well, I played little league since I was five. Um, my dad was always a big Mets fan. Um, my grandfather uh, was from Germany, uh, but when he came here, uh, he was a, he was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Uh, and then, uh, as we all know, the, the Dodgers went to L.A. And uh, when my dad was seven, uh, the Mets came into being, and he's been a fan ever since. And there was uh, I never had a choice. It was. I was preordained to be a Mets fan. So. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I. It, 
I, I, I know what you mean. I mean, you know, one of the things that brought me here was because of the family. Uh, just looking at my mm-hmm. family, it was much more National League than, than anything. But um, before we, we really dive deep into the 2019 New York Mets, just give your shameless plug. Sure. Uh, so I am a composer and a musician and sometimes an actor and music director and other things like that. Um, I my main thing right now is playing in rock bands. Um, I have a band called brain salt, uh, that, uh, we're actually playing tomorrow at midnight, uh, you know, 420 Eve on midnight. Uh, and, uh, we're playing at Rockwood music hall on the lower East side. Um, so that's going to be a fun show. That band is called brain salt. Um, I'm in another band called hide and seek. Um, I don't think we have any, uh, imminent gigs, but we're currently putting together an album, uh, which we'll hopefully be dropping uh, later this year. Um, and I play for another band called Comic Tales of Tragic Heartbreak, and we play sort of all over the city and various bars and restaurants. Um, in addition to playing in bands, I also have written a couple of musicals. Um, I have a show called Cloned, uh, which won Best, uh, Best of Fest at uh, New York Musical Festival in 2014. Um, and I have another show about summer camp, actually, inspired by the camp that Sam and I went to, uh, called Camp Rolling Hills. Um, and that is uh, also a series of books now published by Abrams Books. Um, and it's also available for publishing uh, through Steel Spring Stage Rights. Um, and there's actually a production of it happening at Hoboken Children's Theater in, uh, when is that? In May. So that's really exciting. Um Okay, I think that's about it for my shameless plugs. <laughs> and it's adambspiegel.com, correct? No, it's uh, adamspiegelmusic.com. Adamspiegelmusic.com. Um, look, look at me. Look yeah. at me not doing my, my homework properly. Yes. No, that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and you can follow me on uh, Twitter at adambspiegel, and I believe that is also my Instagram there you go. Well, well awesome. Yep. That's, and again, thank you, thank you for for providing us the theme song, and, and for all of those out there who who has not heard the rest of Adam's music within the Mets fan documentary I made last year, The Newest Breed. He uh, went '80s for the '86 theme, but he has an unbelievable score for the entire project, and I, I have not released any of the uh, the rest of that, but I, I, I do. Uh, urge you to go to YouTube and, and watch the newest breed so you can hear the rest of Adam's music. So, uh, and again, thank you for that, Adam. Um, I, I know yeah, that, that you, you're, you, you obviously have a very busy schedule, uh, so you might not have been able to, to necessarily follow on a, on a day in, day out, inning by inning basis, but you know, the 2019 no, season been... is 18. Yeah, go, go ahead. I, I've been, I've been keeping tabs on them for sure. Uh, and, uh, well, I was able to watch most of the game yesterday. Um, I probably could have watched the whole game on uh, Tuesday, but I, uh, after that first inning, you know. Um, <laughs> but, no, I'm, I'm excited about this team. I think, uh, you know, regardless of losing two out of three to the Phillies. Um, it's exciting to see some, some good younger players coming up. Um, Pete Alonzo looks pretty pretty awesome. Um, 
Who else? McNeil. That guy's that guy's been pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I think Conforto is going to have like a monster year. No one's even going to notice. Yeah, and I think that's that's actually a good point, and that's actually a good place to start. Um, you know, Mike, you you and I were talking about how pessimistic I was going into this podcast, but you were still looking at some of the the bright spots for the first eighteen games. So. Um, let's start with Michael Conforto. Uh, Adam brought up a good point there. He has been fantastic so far and kind of silently fantastic as well. Absolutely. Uh, practice makes perfect. That's a phrase I used last week. He's got another year under his belt, and I think Chili Davis is getting into his head. And, uh, you know, experience is the best teacher. Uh, he's understanding his craft a little bit better, and I think yep. it's proving itself out on the field. You know, so uh, he, you know, he's meeting. Should I say meeting? But he's he's striving to meet expectations, uh, and, and that's not some, you know, that's easily done most of the times. But uh, he's doing well. Uh, we expect much of him. He came up through the system highly touted. So right now, everything seems to be in place. Nothing to complain about. You know, Rich. Some people, some people were definitely saying about um, uh, Michael Conforto probably, possibly, excuse me, uh, competing for an MVP in, in this year. And I'm not sure what the other numbers uh, for everybody else is, but obviously, we all know what it, what April starts can look like and how April starts can fizzle. But he seems to finally be coming into his own after some ebbs and flows of the last few years. Yeah, he he is. And, you know, if you look at it, right, in in 2017, he was an all-star. And I was at the game in late August when that horrific thing happened. You know, he swung and missed and collapsed and pulled his shoulder out of the joint. And then it all makes sense from there. You know, in 2017, he's off of that two-thirds of the season, fantastic, and then he gets hurt. Okay. 2018, for some reason, they thought it was a good idea to not give him much of a spring training. You know, he basically was declared healthy and and rushed to the major leagues, and he struggled, but then what happened? In the second half of the season, he tore it up. So, and then, if you look at this year, you know, looking at his stats right here, 324 batting average um, up till today, five home runs, and uh, let's see, so five home runs, and he has 11 RBIs. So if you are to project that over the full season, you're looking at somebody who will probably be in the high 40s in the home run area and, you know, roughly about 100 RBIs. And, and thank you very much. I'll take that. Now, will he actually produce those numbers? Don't know. But but Conforto is not a guy who came out of nowhere. You know, he's not that player where you're like, hmm, this April start is interesting. Well, what's going on here? He is not that guy. This guy is someone who clearly he's a great hitter and his, his little ebb, you know, in, in early 2018 is completely understandable. This is not coming from nowhere. This is a talented man. And um, so to answer your question, I, yeah, I mean, can this guy compete for an MVP? Absolutely. And I'll tell you something else. I, every time I watch a guy play, I tell my daughter, this guy's going to win a batting title someday. He really is. He, he has power. He goes the other way when he has to. This is a complete player. And um, I think we're lucky to have him. And hopefully, you know, in, in the current trend of teams signing their players to long-term deals, hopefully is one of them. 
That's a great uh, that's a great point. Uh, it, you know, it, it would behoove even with the <clears throat> even with him being a Scott Boris client for the the Mets to wrap up Michael Conforto in a, a pretty little bow, uh, which I'm sure, I'm sure some of the ladies would actually like to see, as well as some. Let's 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 not forget our LGBTQ community who are Mets fans out there. They might like it as well. You know, I my I'm, I'm in my my mother's. <laughs> uh, uh, living room right now, and she is a member of that squad as well. So I, I had to give a little shout out to to that side of things. But anyway, uh, looping back around to to Jeff McNeil, Adam, you you mentioned McNeil and how crazy good he's been. Uh, uh, what are some of the things that you really appreciated seeing from Jeff McNeil? Adam, you there? Uh, looks like we lost Adam. Adam, going hey, I'm on. sorry about that. I muted it and then I oh, forgot. Oh no, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. No, it's okay. <laughs> I do it all the time. Trust me, they can attest to it. But uh, you heard my question, yep. though. Yeah. Yeah. Take it away. Uh, no, it just seems like every time he gets up, he he hits a line drive hard some somewhere somehow, uh, and like especially when he's like leading off, I feel like he's. Uh, he's always on base um, and always making something happen, you know? Yeah, it, it does seem like that. And um, I, 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 before we, we move, we go around the horn about Jeff McNeil guys. I, you know, Adam did mention watching that first inning the other day and, and we were totally, we were staying a little optimistic, but, I want to stay with Adam because I know he's not going to be on the uh, the show for the entire time. So I wanted to loop back around to that first inning and and you know Stephen Matz he he, he it, it seems like he keeps taking one step forward, three steps back. What what are you what did you see incorrect? What what, what have you seen when Stephen Matz is incorrect, Adam? Um, he just seemed rattled. I mean, you know the the. Uh, the the game started off with an error, right? And you know, it it just felt like he, like, well, I don't know. I mean, then Segura got a hit, right? And then I forget what happened. Maybe Harper walked, and that's when that's when it seemed like he was really just wasn't in it mentally. So I'm not sure if that was the case or or not, but. Um, and then, like, I really had to turn it off when, when Rosario made the second error on that double play ball. I was like, oh, well, now this is, you know, that that the, that second one was, like, the probably the worst thing. Yeah, and, and I know I know what you mean. when Whenever, like, you're not able to tune in and the Mets are doing well, and then all of a sudden you tune in, you know, they, they start falling apart. You have that 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 superstition in you, right? That that says, right. well, maybe I just need to step away. Right. Yep. I I did catch the end of uh, the game the night before, though, and that that was fun. Uh, questionable decisions, uh, you know, notwithstanding. And que- right, questionable decisions notwithstanding, and that's actually a good place to start uh, going back around the horn, uh, guys. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, and I'll start with you, Mike. Um, 
it's an organizational decision not to have Edwin Diaz pitch four outs. And I think you can hear in my tone what I think of that. What do you think of that? Tough question. Uh, I'm going to give you this answer. I'll answer it this way first. Red Sox were in a similar situation last night against the Yankees. Uh, Late in the game, Alex Cora brought in his, you know, what is their top reliever at the moment uh, in in the absence of Kimbrell. Uh, But he brought him in uh, in an unconventional time. And Alex Cora says, well, this is when I needed him to save the game, not in the ninth. Uh, so the fact that the Mets are, you know, admitting they're making organizational decisions means that some of these decisions are being taken out of Mickey Calloway's hands. Uh, so sometimes we have to be careful when we start uh, pounding on him instead of the organization and vice versa. Uh, it, it's tricky. I don't know. You know, when analytics are misapplied, uh, I think they're a complete disaster. Uh so it's it's you know it's it's playing in the shade you know it's playing in the shade it's still daytime but in the shade it's a little cool. Well, that's that's a well a well said analysis, uh, uh, Rich. Uh, you know, I I think Mike hit the nail on the head. You know, if there here's the game, you have a one run lead, save the game. Familia's not pitching well, and we'll obviously get around to that in a little bit. Save the game. What's your take? Well, I had a very different take than most people about that particular situation because, you know, Diaz had three instances last year with Seattle where he was asked to get more than three outs, and I believe he succeeded in all of them. But my point is, he doesn't do that on a regular basis. This isn't as much as Mike and I sometimes I wish it is, but, you know, it's not 1975 anymore. The relievers are going multiple innings. Diaz is a, is a one-inning reliever. And so my question is, for a game in April, why do you want to go four outs and, and put him in that situation when, as far as I'm concerned, you pay the other guys in the bullpen? And so I don't look at, the situation where they didn't go to Diaz is some failure on Mickey, Mickey Calloway's part. I think the failure there is the guys who are on the mound are the ones who are accountable. You know, Familia is getting paid to do a job. He didn't do it. Okay. It, and it doesn't, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to put your closer in a situation where it's early in the season and in a role that he's not accustomed to. I think what that means is these freaking guys like Gaselman and, and Familia have to get the job done. So in short, I had no problem going to Gaselman there. Gaselman gets paid. Gaselman has a job. He didn't do it. You know, he um, in the run. I don't think, I think it's more about getting those guys going than it is about a knee jerk reaction. Every time, you know, it's a leverage situation. The eighth, you've got to go to Diaz because eventually you're going to burn this kid out. And and the idea, Mickey was saying, and I agree with it, the idea of bringing him in, sitting him down, and then putting him back out there, it's a, it's a double-edged short, both bad. You're putting him in a role he's not used to, and you could potentially burn the kid out. I think it's about getting the other guys who have defined roles to do their jobs. So I had no particular problem with it. I concur with I John. Think you make, yeah, 
you make a lot of good points too. there. Yeah, yeah, and and I'll loop back around to you, Adam, with that. If you want to take it away from there, but then I'm gonna. I I wanted to ask about one of the relievers who didn't do his job. Uh, but go ahead, Adam. Sure. No, I I actually agree with that completely. Um, I, you know, like uh, everyone was talking about it being a, a controversial decision, you know, and stuff like that. And I was like, no, I, you know, it it makes sense. And especially when, you know, when Brody came out behind him and was like, no, this is what we're going to do. It's, it's fine. You know, um, it, it, what I like about it is that it, it's, they've, they've thought about this all beforehand and have made decisions about it, you know? And I think there's something to be said for that. That's a good point too. I mean, they, they've been, very wishy-washy over the, the last few years in general. And I think you guys might have converted me. Not like I haven't been converted before, but I'm shocked. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I think you guys make a, a lot of sound points, and, and especially because we're always, you know, playing the get-off-my-lawn kind of, kind of mantra about some of modern baseball. Uh, that those, these are very sound, sound uh, points. Adam? You're uh, familiar. Juris familiar. What yeah. is going on? What is going on here? I, who the hell knows? Um, <laughs> I mean, the thing about the thing about relief pitchers is like, you know, one year they'll be fantastic, and the next they won't, and the, like that that seems to happen a lot uh, with relief pitchers in particular. Um, and you know there are tons of uh, former closers too who are no longer that. And you know, um, yeah, I just I just think you don't you don't always know what you're gonna get, even if you think you know what you're gonna get. Yeah, guys, uh, he makes a sound point as well, and I I I think that everything was set up for the makings of of. You know, the it, it looked like the perfect marriage. You know, we we knew what we had with Familia. Um, he he's he's familiar with with the the uh, the place. Uh, and 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 in all, in all honesty, he's done this before and been ready for this before. When when Henry Mejia you know he was the York. closer. Yeah, we know he can pitch in New York exactly. I mean, and 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 he was the eighth inning guy briefly before Henry Mejia uh, did his injury and all the other stuff. Uh, so, mm-hmm. Mike, what do you think What do you think's going on with uh, Familia? I'm not going to say he's a head case, but, you know, there's times when his his sinker is, is just so overwhelmingly effective and he's just pounding on people that uh, he looks brilliant out there and then he strays away from it and then he nibbles and that's when he gets in trouble. So, uh, I'll just leave it at that. I just want him to pitch with a little bit more conviction and go with what he does best. And, you know, uh, the way of bullpens these days is just to blow people away. Uh, That's the whole uh, premise behind this five-inning starter and and follow up with the bullpen of all 90, you know, high 90-mile-an-hour throwers. Uh, So, Familia, uh, do what you do best, which which is pound that sinker which sometimes, for whatever reason, he strays. And when pitchers start nibbling, they get in trouble. 
uh, and then you start throwing pitchers and hitters counts. You know, so I, I think it's a problem with a lot of the relievers right now. But again, we're only 18 games into this. And as Adam brought up, yeah, the Mets are operating under a new uh, procedure this year under BBW. So uh, right now, everything we can chalk it up to coincidence. You know, let's start seeing where this trends as we uh, approach May. Uh, Rich, you know, what, what, what have you been seeing that's off? I think, I think Mike put it perfectly. Right now, uh, you're as familiar as nickname is the Nibbler. <laughs> yeah, that, that may be the case. I mean, um, with Familia, it's hard to know because there's so much going on here. You know, could it be that he's now an eighth inning guy instead of a closer? I don't know. That, that's, you could throw that on the table and say, is he getting used to the role? Um, could it be the sporadic work he's getting? You know, the lack of a defined role, could that be getting to him mentally? where he doesn't have that mindset of, okay, look, we have the lead late game, you know, the other team in its last at bat, I'm coming in to close it. So could it be that? Maybe. Um, or could it be something more basic? Could it just be that, like Mike was saying, the sinker is going all over the place. It, it really has a lot of movement on it. The problem is it's not over the plate, and um, he's getting himself in trouble by getting behind in the count. Mm-hmm. Uh, the game against Washington, when he gave the two home runs in the in the eighth inning, I think it was, um, he had never done that before. So is it a mental thing? Is it a thing where, you know, what, like they say with these, uh, with sinker ballers, if he has too much rest, it's too effective, which cer- certainly appears to be the case. The sinker has incredible movement. So is it tied to the lack of consistent work? I don't know what to say. Um, but the one thing I will say is that, Got to figure that out. I mean, because you can't have this. You can't have situations where the plan that you drew up on the whiteboard in December or in January of having a lead in the eighth inning going to Familia, the ninth inning going to Diaz, Bing Bang, see you later, that plan's not working. And so whatever the issue is, whether it's physical or mental, they've got to figure that out. Uh, well, it can't be because, it can't be lack of work because he's leading, you know, or tied in appearances, and I believe he's leading the bullpen and in his pitch. So there you have it. I mean, it could be the lack of um, maybe it's the role, you know, maybe he's just not. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's not mental. Maybe it is physical. Who knows? But um, but yeah, it, it's not. It has to change because this is not working. It certainly is not. Um, Adam, I know that you have to get going soon, and I was wondering whether you got a chance to look at the players that have worn number 22 in Mets history. Well, I definitely remembered a few. Uh, first, I remembered that right now it's Dominic Smith. Um, he's, yeah. <laughs> he's hitting some balls this year. Uh, I definitely remembered Al Leiter. Um, and uh, I... I, I did look over the list a bit, and for some reason, the thing that struck me most was number the the twenty second number twenty two. <laughs> I thought would be fun to look up, and that is I, I believe it was Michael Tucker, who was very yes. unmemorable as a Met, but he was the twenty second twenty two. And it's funny that you you mentioned that he is very uh, immemorable, and because um, he was there from August till till they were you know out of the playoffs 
um, uh-huh. and was only and was only able to take the number because they traded Xavier Navy. Uh, and I'll 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 throw this out to you, a, an infamous number twenty-two, JJ Putts. If you have any memories uh, of him, that Putts. <laughs> exactly. I, I guess we can leave it there speaking, with him. Uh, well, the, speaking of about, uh, you know not knowing what you're going to get from bullpen guys year to year. Right. That's a great point. You Perfect know, well, example. When you trade, when you trade him without a, a physical, that's that, that's probably bound to happen. Um, do you have any memories well, of Eric Young during Eric Young's t- tenure here? Yeah, I mean, I remember watching him and thinking, all right, he's fast. That's that's all he's got. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, Adam, before we let you go, I know you got to get back to to your thing, but um, one more time, uh, shameless plug, uh, take it away. Sure. Uh, brain salt tomorrow night, 12 p.m. Uh, at Rockwood Music Hall. 12 a.m., you mean, right? Lower East Side. You mean 12 a.m.? 12 a.m., sorry. 11.59 p.m. into 12 a.m. on 420. Perfect. Going to be yeah, a Everybody head, head on out. It is an excellent band. Uh, they rock. They, they're funky. They're, they're fresh. Uh, and, and, Adam, one more thing, actually. Uh, we, we, we always end our show with a last word about whatever, whatever you want it to be uh, regarding either the 2019 Mets or anything uh, specifically about the Mets. What is your last word? Oh, my last word about the Mets. This is really cheesy, but the first thing that popped in my head was amazing. <laughs> And that and that does it. That settles it. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> and that's us. the last word. <laughs> Greatly appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Thanks, uh, Mike and Rich. This was fun. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Definitely, man. Come back anytime. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. See you later. Later, man. All right, guys. So that is that is our composer finally on the uh, the Messian a Messian podcast. Um, and Rich, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to you first. Where do you want to take it from here? Well, how about some alarming numbers? Um, let, let's start with these. So I'm looking at the Mets team ERA, which is five sixty five, and that's fourth worst in baseball. Hmm. And now I'm looking at the Mets' bullpen ERA, which is remarkably consistent at 587 ERA, and uh, that is fourth worst in baseball. Uh, just a note, this is not a Nationals podcast, but while the Mets are at 587, the Nationals' bullpen ERA is 804, which is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, 587 is bad. 804 is, is almost unconscionable. But anyway. So, you know, the Mets are supposed to be built on pitching, and these numbers, you know, clearly indicate that the pitching is not there at this point. Um, I was encouraged by something Mickey Calloway said after the, uh, the, po- the game on, I think it was Tuesday, where someone said, are you concerned about the pitching? And he said, well, um, in the first couple of weeks of the season, a couple of years ago back in Cleveland, we had the worst ERA in the American League, and we ended up, you know, with the best. So, it, sometimes it just takes a while to normalize, and, and I buy into that. That's fine. 
But at the same time, you know, these numbers are concerning. Um, nobody is pitching really well. Matt said look good. Uh, his start Tuesday night, I, I kind of give him a pass on that one, though. Because if you look at it, you know, the game starts in the error by Rosario. He, Rosario then muffs a double play ball. And at that point, I think five runs had scored. But, you know, you never know how that could have changed things. McNeil, they somehow turned that into, they called it a double after, after initially calling it error, and it clearly was an error, the ball that went over his head. Um, so, you know, Matt had been pitching well, but Syndergaard has not been dominant. DeGrom has not been dominant. Yes, I know he's been sick. Uh, there are no words to describe Vargas. So, you know, when you predicate your team's success on strong pitching and you remaster the bullpen, and the bullpen is, an e- is equally a disaster, it's a bit concerning, you know, and the solace is that it's early is that there's time to figure all this out. We're two weeks into a 26 week season. So, okay. Uh, actually three weeks into a 26 week season. Okay. But at the same time, you know, they've got to get this figured out. You can't keep outscoring a pitching staff that's allowing six runs a game. That's where I wanted to go. It's a sound point. Um, you know, things – you think, Mike, that things are going to even out at some point. And we've seen the offense kind of come back uh, to the middle ground. I mean, taking on Jake Arrieta will help that as well. And, uh, you know, taking on Aaron Nola didn't seem to matter because that was – you know, both offenses were, were tit for tat in, in that game. Um, so what, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that this – is too much of a trendsetter, or do you think that they're going to uh, level out? Well, firstly, we've been playing our National League East close, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Washington. And I, I think the four of us, we're just going to be bashing each other's brains in all season. Uh, so, you know, that's the that's what we have to work with so far. And just to back up what Rich was saying, I'll throw a couple of more stats out there the pitching staff as a whole, and I compiled these numbers last night, so they could have changed within the last 24 hours. But as of last night, the pitching staff as a whole has the highest OPS against, the highest batting average against. Uh, They've allowed the fourth most walks. Uh, So, you know, taking that into consideration, the Mets have been somewhat lucky to be getting by as well as they have. I'll throw the defense into this before we get into the offensive aspect of uh, Mets baseball, but uh, they're ninth in total chances thus far and 10th in turning double plays, which to me says, you know, they're not exactly pitching to contact. And, and I have a philosophical problem with that, and I think that's why Keigel's still out on the market. Yet, you know, for as many chances that they've, had they've committed the fourth most errors. So you can't have that. You can't have bad pitching and bad fielding. They've allowed the most stolen bases, uh, and they're the fifth worst team in throwing runners out. Uh, Overall, their 980 fielding average ranks 13th out of 15 National League teams, and their defensive efficiency ratio rates dead last. Again, here we are talking about 18 games, uh, and all but two of them, have been against their National League East rivals. I think that speaks somewhat to the division itself. I speak it. I think it speaks uh, partly to the Mets' pitching troubles. Uh, 
and uh, whatever else you might want to throw into the mix. Whew. Yeah, uh, you can't be making the errors that they, they've been making. Um, speaking of which, what, let's, let's go around the horn. Pete Alonzo, defensively. Rich, have you liked what you've seen from him? I think he's been uh, better than advertised. Agreed. No, I think he's been definitely better than advertised. If, if Alonzo could play that defense that he's playing now, I'll take it every day. Um, I think with Alonzo, I'm a little concerned about his offense at the moment and the fact that clearly this time, I know you asked about defense, you asked about defense, but this time around, it seems like the book got out on him really fast. You know, that if you keep the ball out of the strike zone, off speed, a lot of breaking pitches, he is really struggling with those. But his defense is, I would say, you know, I'm not looking at the statistics, defensive run save. I'm actually going to pull that up here because I'm curious, but the eye test on his defense would tell you that um, that he's actually he's actually pretty good. I mean, I, I think he, he's adequate. Yeah, I, I I mean the stretches, Mike. Those those have been really impressive. I mean, he he goes after the ball, which is what you want from your first baseman, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, everyone says that he put in a lot of work. Uh, he hasn't been a, li- a, li- a liability at first base in the least bit. I've seen one error that, you know, you could you could write that down with the capital E. Otherwise, uh, no, uh, far from a disappointment at first base. Uh, you know, I just want to see him turn that 3-6-3 three, three double play uh, a little more because we haven't had a, a test case to work with yet. So I'm kind of curious about that. That's a great point. And going over to second base, I think we're going to group both defensively and uh, offensively into the same category with Robinson Cano. Rich, let's start with the defense. Uh, at the, uh, I will start with the defense. I think he's been just as advertised. He's just so smooth over there. It's been fantastic. Um, I'm not as concerned about the offense because what I keep hearing is that he generally starts slow. Now, mind you, he might be starting a little slower than normal, but at the same time, he is 36. I mean, it was slightly to be expected. And the Roberto Alomar comparisons, I think, are just asinine because Roberto Alomar, his his attitude has just not been even – was not even close to what Robinson Cano has shown us. And he's been, I think, a big proper influence on Ahmed Rosario. Yeah, I I have – well, I don't want to say I have no concerns about Robinson Cano. Defensively, he's he's just absolutely amazing. Like you watch him turn a double play, you're almost every time I see him in the middle of a double play, I'm like, "What are you doing?" Because he's so nonchalant. He takes the ball so casually, slings it over to first base, and and when you're just seeing Cano, you're like, he lollygagged that the guy's going to be safe, but he always gets his man. He's good on basically everything. I haven't had any defensive concerns. Offensively, I, I'm not really concerned. Yes, his 192 average is, is not at all what we thought it would be. But at the same time, you know, you, you know he's a great hitter and, and you have every reason to believe, to use the cliche, that the back of the baseball card will rule the day. But then, at least for me, every now and then it creeps in the back of my mind, he is 36, he is 36. Then that goes away and I'm like, okay, he'll be fine, he'll be fine. But he is 36. So, 
I can't say I have no concerns offensively, but um, but I, I am confident that he'll become the Cano we expected. Mike, where do you want to take it from there? I don't know. I, I, I think I really am being good cop today because it's funny. They used to speak of Hank Aaron and his, you know, quote-unquote nonchalant ways in the outfield. And, and Willie Mays' basket catch used to just, you know, give people a rash. So, you know, Cano, uh, he hasn't, again, I'll use the same word. He hasn't been a liability at second base, so that's a good thing. Uh, whether his style, you know, if some people find that a little bit perplexing and deem it, you know, a lack of hustle or just nonchalant. I don't know what to make of it. All I know is just it hasn't cost us yet. So I'm just trying to be fair about it. <laughs> I don't know what else to make of it. I didn't like it as a Yankee. You know, I, that's what I accused him of. But like I said, now that he's here, now that he's, you know, in a Met uniform, I'm trying to give him a clean slate and just go by what I see. Uh, and so far, you know, I think he's been a leader of, uh, in the infield with the young guys, even though Rosario's off to a miserable start out in the field. You know, but, uh, again, uh, I'll give him a fair shake, and I have nothing to complain about. I'm sure he'll snap out of this little hitting funk that he's in. I think he's a professional hitter and knows how to get out of it. And hopefully you're right, Sam, that, you know, he's a notorious slow starter. I've never looked into that, but I know he's a professional hitter. Uh, and he'll figure it away. He'll figure a way out of it. And if he doesn't, well, then we're, we're going to have an entirely different conversation about Robinson Cano. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I mean, when he gets the the barrel on the ball, it's such a sweet swing. It really is. I mean, and and it's just it's what I noticed with the Yankees too. He's just so smooth, whether it be the swinger in in the field, but. Yeah. Let's go over to shortstop and talk about Ahmed Rosario in the defense and also the offense uh, to a point. Um, Friday, uh, Rich, he was the, the the offensive hero of the game, but Pete Alonso hit a monstrous splash home run and and kind of, you know, just took the headline. Actually, it was Thursday, excuse me, Thursday. Uh, took the headlines for, for the Friday papers because it was the hardest hit ball of the year. But – uh, there have been some good signs, but at the same time, when you look at the overall offensive numbers, it, it, it's not creeping up uh, like you thought it actually should be. And so what, what, what do you make of, of Ahmed Rosario so far this year on both uh, the defense and the offense? Well, I read something today that was a bit troubling. You know, he has a minus of zero point, a negative 0.3 DRS at shortstop which I believe was worse than the National League and one of the worst in baseball. So that's a tough statistic for your shortstop. That's a defensive position. And when your, your shortstop is costing you runs, even if it's, you know, less than a, less than a full run, that's bad, you know? And um, so I am concerned about that. You look at some of these guys like, um, like, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. with the Padres has a three DRS. And, and so, and he's among the leaders. Javi Baez has a four. Um, and Dansby Swanson, by way of example, also has a three. But here we have Rosario below the Mendoza line, so to speak, you know, in the negative area. So um, I am a little bit concerned about the defense. You think about, like I said, Tuesday night's game, 
they probably would have lost anyway, but certainly those errors really, really open the door for the Phillies to bury them. So he's got to figure that out. And, um, you know, defense is something that he's been doing this his whole life. He came up touted as a really good defensive shortstop, and, and we're not seeing it right now. So, and then offensively, you know, I think I, I, I agree with what I've heard. He, he's had a couple of good games, like last Thursday in Atlanta. He's had some good games where you say to yourself, okay, this is the guy we thought we had. But then he goes into these, every now and then he'll look like the old Rosario, you know, chasing out of the zone. My thought on him offensively is he'll fix that. You know, he's still really young. He will fix the chasing. And I do think we're going to have a decent offensive shortstop on our hands. I'm just more concerned about why, why is the defense lagging behind? What's the reason for that? You know, that's not a function of being in the leagues or being in the minor leagues. That defense is defense. And so I have no idea why he's struggling and I hope they can figure it out because like Mike was saying, when you have bad pitching and bad team defense, if you're, t- you're 10 and eight by the grace of God at that point, when you have bad pitching and bad team defense, they've got to figure this one out. They really do. Um, it, it's just not a good combination. And I think the writing's on the wall, why that's obviously not the, the, the best combination. Um, I guess let's go with Jeff McNeil here. Uh, and then we can kind of, this is kind of like a have-to-do's with Jeff McNeil and J.D. Davis, but we did bring Jeff McNeil up, so this is a good place to, to come back around. Uh, we've talked a lot about his offense, but it sounds like the theme, uh, the, the theme of the around the horn is that these defensively astute uh, uh, minor leaguers are coming up and not doing as well. Um, but then, people that we heard weren't all that good defensively, like Jeff McNeil, have been absolutely outstanding in professionals, Mike. And, and I haven't seen anything. And, and Rich, we'll, we'll let you talk about the outfield. Mike, in terms of the infield, I haven't seen anything out of Jeff McNeil uh, other than spectacular defense since last year and this year. I'm certainly not going to compare him to Pete Rose. Don't, don't you know, make that mistake. Don't allow me to make that mistake. What my only point is, is that, you know, Pete Rose willed himself to greatness. He wasn't given uh, the greatest physical attributes. And he'll tell you that, uh, that he just willed himself by, by pure effort. And, and that's what McNeil's doing. You know, he's just going out there and willing himself to, to succeed. And he's doing just that. Now the outfield issue, I put that on the general manager, you know, and uh, the infield situation. Well, you got to look at injuries uh, and, and enter Jeff McNeil. So he's just making the best of the situation, and he's uh, he's shining. The kids, he's just he's been nothing but involved uh, in, in in good things and and, and rallies and, and scoring runs. You know, I'm looking at his stats right now. He's one, two, three. He's he's only got the fifth most at bats on the team. Yet he leads the team in hits. You know, so yeah, perhaps you maybe want him to work on his selectivity a little bit more. But I have no complaints, man. The kid's been a wonder kid. He he certainly has been that. But you've seen him exposed in the outfield, Rich, huh? Well, 
it's like Keith Hernandez says every time. I don't like him in the outfield. I don't either. You know, it's like, okay, it's not working. What more do you have to see? He's misjudged probably three or four balls in the outfield, not counting the one in Philly on Tuesday night that he had lined up. It just went over. He put his glove up and just went to the side of his glove. He is not an outfielder. It's that simple. And so they have to – they have to abandon this idea of playing him out of position to get his bat in the lineup, play him in position to get his bat in the lineup. And they may have to make some tough decisions. He may have to become the starting third baseman. And that means JD Davis. Well, you know, either he goes to Syracuse or he's a bench player, one or the other. Uh, Todd Frazier. I think they've got to look at dumping him off on an American league team. If they have to, he doesn't have a role here anymore. And so, but the answer to these questions, and I know, Mike, I'm probably pressing your button as well. The answer to these questions is not play the guy out of position. That doesn't solve anything. You know, the unfortunate reality is what happens when the other team is at bat, that counts toward the result of the ball game. You can't just look at offense. And you're seeing McNeil, he just – like Keith said, if anybody's played Stratomatic, he's a foreign Stratomatic, the worst possible number you can have for a fielder. Why do you want to do that? Don't force this guy into the lineup. Put him where he belongs and get rid of the other guys who are in his way. Don't force him into the lineup in a situation that's not helping the team. So, but, but getting back to that, he's hitting 424. I mean, that's amazing. Um, he hustles. He's a throwback kind of a guy. He's a get-dirty kind of player hits the ball to all fields, occasional pop in the bat. Um, what is not to like about this guy? And, again, I, I completely exonerate him for the fielding stuff. It's not his fault that they're playing him out of position. Uh, but he's a throwback player, you know, down and dirty kind of guy. Why he doesn't bat lead off every time he's in the lineup is beyond me, uh, but he should be. And, uh, yeah, McNeil's fine. You know, he wasn't even a prospect, but this guy's fine. And, Rich, is that really right? I mean, Playing people out of position is just something that, you know, makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I can't stand it. And Rich is right. That's why I put the outfield situation on the organization, not on him. Rich is right. You know, Jeff is is an innocent party in all this, and like I said, he's just making the best of it. It's a great point. I mean, it, it. just going, sorry, sorry, just the, real quick. I mean, it's what happened with Daniel Murphy. And unfortunately, he didn't have any position, and it came back to bite us at, at the worst possible time. But it's what we've seen year in, year out. Go ahead, Rich. No, I was going to make the point. Look at another organization. Look at the Cubs and Kyle Schwarber. Look at the 2015 playoffs. He was horrific in the outfield. You know, he opened the door for the Mets, those games in Wrigley, when he was misjudging balls and all that kind of stuff, he opened the door for the Mets to end the Cubs season out there. You know, look at uh, the obvious example for Mets fans, Todd Hundley playing left field. There are so many examples of this. You know, you could, the number of examples where guys don't succeed being played out of position overwhelms the number of examples where a guy learns a new position on the major league level. Sure. It could happen, but you know, look at Dom Smith in left, in left field last year. I mean, just, just, this concept, like my, I'll use Mike's term, it does make the hair on my neck stand up. It's like, what are you doing? When did, when did we get to this place where we felt that, like I said earlier, 
what happens when the other team at bat is at bat somehow doesn't count. Of course it counts. You have to have defense on the field. Anyway, that's my rant. It's it's a very sound rant. And speaking of uh, defense on the field, uh, Travis Darnot has been backing up Wilson Ramos. Let's go to the the catching position. I can't forget the catching position. Uh, Mike, uh, you know, we uh, Travis Darnot. It, we we've, we're kind of exacerbated about about him, and um, I, I, I we'll we'll get to Wilson Ramos, but let's stay with this rant. <laughs> I don't understand what they were. I don't understand what they were thinking when it came to Devin Mezzarocco. It, yeah, it's just, uh, it, that's really I, ponderous. I, I don't. I you know what Mezzarocco is a complete mystery to me. I don't know how and why that disintegrated the way it did. Uh, if we want to cycle back to the Philly series, you know, uh, Real Muto had himself a hell of a day the other day, and that's just one that sticks in my side. I think the Mets uh, should have hung in there and, and tried their best to, uh, you know, make that deal, but they didn't, and here we are. Uh, Travis Darno, uh, I'm so done with him. I really am. Uh, and, and that's why this whole thing, you know, to bring and use an old word, ponderous. This whole catch, this whole catching situation is ponderous. I'm not putting anything on Ramos. You know, it was a good plan B, uh, but the backup situation, I, I just don't understand how it became such a quagmire. And the obvious choice, I, I mean, it was just a castaway at this point. Rich, uh, Ramos has been a singles master. I mean, he's just been getting – he's been getting big hits, but they've all been singles. And we've been wondering where the power was going was gonna to come. Power came a little bit on, on Tuesday night. Um, I think that's hopefully the start of, of, of something huge. Uh, but I, I, other than the power, I really have no complaints about Wilson Ramos so far. He's thrown out uh, a few batters as well. Yeah, I have no complaints either. He's, you know, we saw him as a national. We saw him as a Philly as much when he was a Tampa Bay Ray. And so my, my going in assumption for him was that he was a lumbering power hitter, you know, kind of an all or nothing hitter, but he's absolutely not that, you know, he's a good hitter. He's hitting 321 right now. And you're right. He's spraying the ball around. He's getting a lot of singles, which I'll take every day. I have no problem with that. And, um, and it looks like, the pitchers like working with him and he's a threat when he's up there. You know, even though he's only he's basically a singles hitter at this point, you know, he's going to start popping some home runs. So yeah, no problem with him. I'm concerned about your point that you made earlier though, the drop off from Wilson Ramos to Travis Darno is, I mean, it's like falling off a cliff, you know, you, the, the, the lower quality of, of that catcher versus the starting catcher is, is just, I mean, that's a, that's a gaping hole right there. And um, I, I don't know, Darno doesn't look ready to me. I mean, is it that he didn't get enough rehab games? Is it that he's just not that good? I don't know what it is, but he's not doing anything well right now. He's not throwing well. He's not hitting. Um, and, you know, when you have a, a delicate catcher, I'll, I'll use the, the word, in Ramos, that you have to get him off his feet every now and then. He does have an injury history. And you're going from Wilson Ramos to what is an extremely ineffective Travis Darno. That's a lot. 
you know, that's a lot. And I, and I think the Mets could have closed that gap, as you were saying, by keeping Mezzarocco. Now, I know Mezzarocco is no all-star, and, I, and I, you know, people say he had one good season. That's true. How many good seasons has Darno had? And how many, how many does he project to have at this point, the way he looks? So I, I like Wilson Ramos a lot, and I'm very concerned about in strength, to use the term, the second string catcher, the backup catcher. I'm very concerned about the, the lack of depth there. I don't think Darno's the answer. I don't think Nito's the answer. And if I were Brody, I'd be, I'd be sending some flowers to Mezzarocco and apologizing and see if we can get him back in the organization. I mean, isn't he still technically in the organization on the restricted list? He is. Get him back playing in the yeah. organization, maybe is what I should have said. Right. Right, right. Well, I, I'm just, it, it, it's so confusing. It's just so confusing as to exactly what this is. But, but Mike, before you, you loop it around, I want to uh, zone in on what you were talking about, Rich, uh, with Wilson Ramos. Um, I mean, he's, his, his slugging career-wise is 438. That is a lot lower than we expected it to be. His OPS is 757. He's generally only gotten on base at a 319 clip. He's doing fantastic right now at 393. Uh, he's got 12 RBIs, scored nine runs. He only has 110 home runs in his entire career, which is, you know, you'd, you'd expect that number to be at least 200 if he were a power hitter. But, but uh, he's been, he's been he, I, I like what we've been seeing from Wilson Ramos. He seems like a good leader out there. Anyway, Mike, what were you going to bring up? Well, real quickly on him, he's one of those if things. You know, if we can manage his playing time to maybe 120 games, perhaps he stays healthy. When he's healthy, he can, you know, he wields a hot bat. Uh, when he's plagued by, you know, nagging injuries and hurt all the time, and, you know, that's when his numbers suffer. So let's see what that, that you know, that holds in store for us. Uh, just real quick on Darno. I think it was DeGrom's last start, and I'm not blaming DeGrom's poor outing on, De, uh, on Darno by any stretch of the imagination. It was just one pitch and one pitch only that just really rankled me. Uh, it was to Darno's right, and I just saw him take a, a, a lazy backstab at it, and the ball went all the way to the backstop. It was a lazy backstab when a, when a, when a qualified receiver would have dropped to his knees and squared to the ball and kept it in front of him. And that's why I'm just done with him. I bet you if we looked at when uh, uh, when DeGrom started his streak last year, Mezzarocco was there for, if not, the, if not every game, the majority of the games. I don't know. And, and, and listen, you know, DeGrom is a professional. He needs to be able to, to pitch to to his best to any catcher, but Rich, how important is a receiver for a Cy Young award winning season? I don't know, Sam. It's a good question. And a lot of people say that it doesn't matter when you're Jacob DeGrom, you could throw to a, a, a one of those pitchbacks. Before you finish your answer, Rich, then I'm sorry to jump in. Before you finish your answer, consider this, because the booth themselves said that DeGrom shaked off Darno that night at least 17 times, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, That's true. No, he did. He did shake shake Darno off a lot. My thought on it, though, is I I do think that the thought that, you know, that Mesoraco somehow played a significant or or, or some role – 
in DeGrom's great season. I'm not sure about that. I I think he could have pitched to Ramos and done the same thing. I think when you're as good as Jacob DeGrom, shaking people off or not, I I put less of value on the catcher there. I put more of a value on the catcher or something like Steven Matz, somebody, some of the younger guys like Wheeler and Matz and that kind of thing. But when it comes to DeGrom, he's so good and he's so dominant. I'm not sure that it matters there. But where I would like to see Mesoraco is for these other guys. So this way, when you when you're, have a Wheeler out there, when you have a Mats out there, I won't even mention the other guy's name, uh, when you have those guys out there, you have a good pitch framer. You have a guy who clearly, they say Mesoraco is a fanatical worker. He has a book on every hitter in the National League. You, know, you have a guy who's prepared, a guy who frames well, calls a good game, all those things. Um, so I think the value of Mesoraco is there. I just think it, it, it plays more with the other starters than it would with, with DeGrom. That's just my opinion. And I know people will say that Mesoraco really did help DeGrom. Maybe he did. But, but that's my, uh, my personal observation. Mike, I'll ask you the same question. How important is a and it seems it's you know you kind of did answer it in some fashion, but I'll I'll frame the question again. How important is a catcher to a Cy Young Award winning season? You know what? I'm going to give you the old Al Bundy Polk High School answer because when I played little league and, and traveling teams and through high school and pitched. And even in college, my first two years, I I did have a favorite catcher. I felt more comfortable with, you know, some as opposed to others. I don't know how much that weighs in. That's just me and my personal experience. I don't know how, you know, that manifests itself when, when you're talking about major leaguers. But me personally, I had favorites, and I had uh, more confidence in others, and I felt more comfortable with some catchers more than others. Well, yeah, and there you go. I mean, I, I think that my my answer is that you can't let it necessarily affect you, but unfortunately there's things that are psychological that you can you try to control as much as you possibly can, but obviously they edge themselves in there. And when I mean when Tom when Tom Seaver speaks of Carlton Fisk, Jerry Grody, and Johnny Bench with such reverence, that means something to me. Yeah, yeah, and, and so uh, what was it? Degrom was on um, uh, Degrom was on Sunday night, correct? Yes. So did he? Uh, did Wilson Ramos catch him on Sunday night? Darno did. Darno caught him on Sunday night. Darno caught him uh, in the blowout game against the Twins. Who caught him for those first two times? Uh, now, mind you, one of them was against the Marlins. Uh, one, one of them, them was obviously opening day. Both one of those games was caught by Nito. One of the games was caught by Nito? Rich, can you confirm or deny? Uh, check that. Um, you know what? I'd have to go back and look and look at the results. I I know Ramos was opening day. The game against the Marlins that Degrom 
got the 14 strikeouts. I believe Nito caught that game because it was a day game after a night game. It was a 6 o'clock start after a night right. game. Yeah, I, I believe that was the Nito start, yeah. Yeah, I think that was Nito. And then uh, Ramos caught him on, you know, for the Twins game, and then uh, Darno caught him on Sunday. So it's been 2-2. Two and two. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I, I, and again, it's early in the season when it comes to DeGrom. He, he really got rolling come May last year. And we, we, I mean, he's got a 269 ERA for his career at this point. He's given us 27 wins. He is clearly the, the was for a little while the unsung ace of this staff. And, and obviously the entire league knows what he's capable of now. And um, the the whip is obviously right now the whip is at one point two seven three, and that obviously has to come down. He's got a one point oh seven six whip for his career, and I, I'm I'm sure if I look at it right now, two thousand eighteen. It, 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 I'm I'm guessing I'm guessing I'm going to see his whip under. Uh, why isn't the there it is? Yeah, it's under one at. Point nine one two. That is absolutely outstanding. He was fifth in the MVP race, which is unheard of for a pitcher. That that is um, now I'm obviously transitioning to just going gaga over how good <laughs> Jacob Degrom is. Uh, but I think you know we we need to figure out the the proper formula for for the catching, um, and and see where it takes us. Not only for Degrom but for everybody because everybody's been pretty horrendous and. Uh, Guys, before we, we – if, if we want to get to some of these starters, uh, which we certainly can, I'd like to talk about the outfield, uh, which is Jeff McNeil is a, a good transition. Um, Brandon Nimmo, you mentioned leadoff. He's started to come around a little bit more. I think he's going to be fine, Rich, but you, I, I, I think you're absolutely right that right now – you need men on base immediately. You can't have the strikeouts that Brandon Nimmo is providing. And he seemed to start getting more of, of uh, success in the seven hole with McNeil in, in the leadoff spot. So I got to agree with you and take it away from there. Well, you know, with Nimmo, when you talk to the, the folks who really like to focus on statistics and, and so first couple of statistics for you. Right now he's hitting 241 and he has a three 388 on base percentage. Right, last he hit in the two ish area and so what does that jump off the page right there? What that tells you is he's getting on base a lot via getting hit by a pitch or mostly by bases on balls. Right, and then you ask yourself how sustainable is that? Right now, but is that sustainable? Are we losing them, Sam? Uh, uh, Rich, we I'm not sure if you could hear us, but we, we uh, could hardly catch the last five seconds. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you now. Okay. So Nimmo is a guy that looks like a regression waiting to happen because he has so many walks that you have to think it's people adjust to that. 
start challenging him more in the strike zone. And then lo and behold, what happens when they challenge him in the strike zone? He strikes out a lot. So Nimmo's a very weird case. You know, he strikes out a lot, gets on base a lot, a lot of walks. I just wonder how sustainable that is. And then based on what you guys were saying, which I totally agree with, he seems to flourish lower in the order. So if you're going to play Nimmo, I'd like to see him lower in the order. Yeah, I mean, looking at it, I didn't even realize how many strikeouts he had last year, 140. I mean, you know, we're not we're not getting to Mark Reynolds' territory, but it's it's getting up there. I mean, in 2017, when he batted 260, he still had 60 strikeouts in 177 plate appearances. That's a terrible ratio, actually, uh, in 177 at-bats. That is a terrible uh, ratio, and and so something's got to give. You you can't you can't have a strikeout as often, Mike, uh, in the leadoff position as Brandon Nimmo provides. Now, obviously, with the 17 home runs and 47 RBIs, and the fact that the you know the second half was better, and we started finding excuse me we started finding success, and he did walk 80 times in 433 plate appearances, uh, going for a 404 on base percentage. So obviously. And, and, and it seems like he, you know, he's starting to to hit around there. But the strikeouts are very, very concerning in that leadoff position. They're concerning to us. It doesn't seem very concerning to greater baseball. Uh, I'm in Brandon Nemo's Brandon corner. I think he's come a long way since playing Legion ball. You know, when he was uh, a 17 and 18 year old. Uh, yeah, the strikeouts are problematic, especially at the top of the order. But, you know, his 388 on base percentage to date is agreeable. It's respectable. Uh, and if he can get it back up to four like he did last year, you know, even better. Uh, you guys mentioned dropping dropping him down in the lineup. I have problems with the myriad of lineups that Mickey Calloway has submitted this season. Uh, I'd like to see a little bit more stability. Uh, you know, so... Brandon Nimmo has shown me enough that he can hit. He has his flaws. The scouting reports are out there, and he's having a miserable time adjusting. Uh, But I have faith in him just because he's come a long way, and I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to make any judgments yet. Let him get into uh, the warmer days of late May, and I'll make another assessment. He played a lot last year, and and this is such a a, a almost non X factor. But um, what if Suspedes is is ready at any point in the season? I mean, obviously he might not go on a tear right away, Rich. But you know, I heard A Rod talking about like, what if all of a sudden Joanna Suspedes is yet another you know, acquisition, basically, like he was in 2015 for this team in August. Well, at that point, it gets more complicated, right? Because it's complicated now with having McNeil in the outfield and, you know, and dealing with all of that and trying to stop putting square pegs in round holes. Well, what happens when Cespedes comes back, if he does? Now you have a more crowded outfield. And they're going to – the Mets are going to have to start making some decisions. You know, you, you can't just keep this status quo of having all these guys around, and, and it may mean stepping out of the norm. I'm sure part of the issue with Frazier is they don't want to eat the money. Nobody's going to pay Frazier, what is it, $8.5 this year? 
Um, the Mets may have to eat some of that money, but they're going to have to start moving some of these guys out. You know, when you get Cespedes back, yeah, he's got to play left field. Absolutely. And that means that, that McNeil has to play. He has to play third base. So there's no room for a Todd Frazier. There might be no room for a J.D. Davis, who's a different issue. You don't have a money issue there. But um, they, they may – that's going to start forcing their hand to do some of these things and, and really start to address this roster and figure out, you know, we can't have dead weight. You know, if you're all in on this season, you can't have dead weight, and you may have to start moving some of these guys out of here. And they may have to get comfortable with that. You know, I'd like to talk about Keon Broxton. I've really appreciated what I've seen out of him. He, he's uh, been getting on base, and he has the speed that we haven't seen from the Mets in a very, very long time. Uh, Rich, I'll go right back to you about it. What, what have you enjoyed? Out of, have you enjoyed watching Keon Broxton so far, speaking of the outfield and the crowdedness of it? Well, I like Keon Broxton a lot. I mean, here's a guy who is, you know, very dichotomous. So he had an outstanding 17. He had a down 18. And right now he looks closer to the down 18 than the outstanding 17. Um, But when you look at the athletic ability he has, the speed, the defense, um, he he can bring a lot to the table. So I I don't want to give up on him. I definitely want him to stick around. Um, when you look at it, you know, he's batting 200, Lagarre sitting 219. So they're not getting anything offensively out of their center field position. You know, Broxton had that big hit in the Saturday game against Washington. Lagarus had the right field home run. I believe it was the Monday night game against the Marlins. So they each had a role offensively in a single victory. But right now you're getting Jack out of your offense, out of uh, center field offensively. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, I do like having Broxton around. I love having the speed guy, the defense guy. And I do think that, that when you look at his 2017, it's in him, he could do it. And so, um, I don't want to give up on this guy at all. Yeah, I, I guess that I've been impressed with him enough that I didn't realize he was batting so low, but, um, it just seems that like he makes things happen. I mean, you know, we, we were just talking about Eric Young Jr., uh, Mike, and, and I guess that's what we always said. Like, when he gets on base, he makes things happen, but it's about getting on base. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about Broxton, I'll point my fingers at the front office again. Southfield is on them. Uh, I have no expectations from Broxton. So, you know, right now to me, uh, it's rather inconsequential to me. I don't know what we're going to get out of. Uh, so I would point fingers other, uh, in another direction and not necessarily at him. Yeah, uh, that's that's a, a outstanding point. Uh, we, you know, guys, we're we're getting pretty knee deep into this evening. Uh, we still have a little bit of a twenty-two to talk about, but um, I, I'll, I'll go back to you, Rich. What what is something that we have to talk about with the two thousand nineteen team before we wrap this part of the podcast up? Well, I think we have to talk about the gorilla in the room, which is there are two guys out there. I know we talk about it every time, but there are two guys who are free agents who can help this team. Um, and we have a glaring need with the fifth starter. You know, you, I don't see how you could say you're all in and keep running Vargas out there. You, you, you can't do this. And so Keiko's out there. Um, apparently he's okay with taking a one-year deal. I was just reading. 
to reset the clock basically, you know, and try the free agent market again next year. So where are the Mets on this? Like, why are they not talking to this guy? Um, you're already a month into the season almost. So you can get him at a discount, not only in terms of his asking price, but also in terms of his service time. So Heichel's out there. Kimbrell, you know the Braves are going to be all over this guy. They just lost their closer to, to uh, shoulder surgery out for the season, Vizcaino. So it would be as much of a defensive move as anything else to sign Kimbrell. And while initially I thought signing Kimbrell would be crazy because the Mets, yeah, Familia is not good right now, but they have good arms in the bullpen. So why would you want to sign Kimbrell? But then when you think about it, if you put Kimbrell in the eighth inning role, you can use Familia as a righty in like the sixth, seventh inning, which means Lugo is now freed up to be your fifth starter. So either way, whether you sign Keuchel or whether you sign Kimbrell, you can address that fifth starter spot and, and, and don't give me this nonsense that you have confidence in Vargas. Based on what? Based on a couple of starts he made in the second half of 2018? This guy is killing you, okay? He's killing you. What are you doing about it? You can't say you're all in and let this guy keep going out there. And, and whether you sign Kimbrell or Keiko, who I, I guess both their prices have come way down, you begin to address that problem. So we need to talk about that. I think I've given my opinion. Now it's up to you guys. Mike, something somebody on Facebook brought up to me when I was talking about uh, uh, Dallas Keuchel. Um, Keuchel, Dallas Keuchel, excuse me, Jesus. Um, this gentleman said that if we sign him before, I'm reading right now, if we sign him before June 17th, we lose a draft pick and around $1 million in international cap money. Plus, depending on the deal, we could end up over the luxury tax level. What do you think of that information about Dallas Keuchel? <laughs> That is 100% correct, and that's why no team has made a move yet. You know, and then if you're the Mets, you got to consider if Cespedes does indeed come back, well, then he comes back on the books. And I will bring money back into this and say and remind everyone that the Mets' payroll has remained steady the last three years running. They're not going to add that- payroll. They still, they're still in trouble, and I'm trying to follow that as closely as possible. And I'm only letting and that's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. That's yeah, the they're still in trouble. So they're not going to raise it. It is what it is, and it is what it's been. But what you say is true. If they wait till after June, whatever it is, no, they won't. Any team would not be obligated to surrender a draft pick as compensation. And, uh, you know, it would make more sense organizationally to operate that way. You know, business-wise, it makes total sense. Uh, and then you could settle on a prorated contract for the rest of the year. You know, but uh, the longer Cespedes is out, the more insurance money hopefully they can recoup at some point because there's stipulations when they do get that money. But, you know, the longer he stays out, perhaps uh, the better chance we have of bringing in a title because the expense would have been covered. They would have hedged the cost. But uh, certainly, I do not expect the Mets to increase payroll. Maybe slightly come the trade deadline. Perhaps Keisel is involved in something like this. Perhaps Kimbrell. Uh, so if, if we're talking about marginal increases, yeah, I think they would do that uh, because they're going to get a, an increase at the gate this year. I, I think we're all confident of that. So outside of that, I think, you know, it is what it is. 
Rich, what do you think about that? Did you know any of that information? Well, it, it all makes sense, and, and sure. I mean, they, they don't want to add payroll necessarily, and you don't want to surrender, surrender a draft pick necessarily, and other teams have said the same thing, that they don't want to surrender the draft pick. I hear that more than I hear about adding payroll, but okay, fine, but don't tell me you're all in then because you're not. You're not. Right. If, if you're, right. Right? Right. If you're not going to add – First of all, there are ways around the thing that the thing that in, makes the hair of my neck stand up is that there are ways around that. You get rid of Frazier, and and if you have to pay four million of his contract, you just save five million or, or four and a half million. Okay, great. So now you save four and a half million right there. You you could maybe get rid of Ligaris. I, I, some people to some people that's blasphemy. To me, it isn't. And if you have to eat a little bit of his contract, you save. You save five five million there. He has a nine million dollar contract this year. So maybe you save four or so. Now you've just saved eight. Okay. Now you could you could bring in Keuchel or Kimbrel. I would imagine for five months it'd be pretty close to eight million for either one of those guys, based on the fact that I'm hearing their their demands are going down. So get creative. Address the freaking problem of the fifth starter, and. Either so, either spend the money, sacrifice draft pick, or make the payroll room. Bring these guys in, sac- one of those guys in, sacrifice draft pick, or option three: stop telling people you're all in because you're not. See, that's the part where I say that you know they can, BBW can only play this charade to a certain point before it's revealed. Ownership is still in the quagmire they're in because, as you say, Rich, stop preaching. We're all in when you behave differently. I just think that's Brody's game, though. I think he's always going to be the spinmeister. You know, he he is selling. He get, well, he gets, in, he gets he, paid he, to be selling. the spinmeister. He's being paid to get yeah. to be the, the spinmeister and get our minds away from that. But at some point, you know. Yeah. At yeah, some point, no, people catch on. Guys, you guys are right. At some I, point, I people don't, catch I on. I don't know. Uh, and and everybody's everybody's going to catch on, but we're going to still hear the same thing out of of everybody within that organization. So, again, we're back to square one, guys. It, it, but but Rich, I'll go back to you. We don't want to end on the, the pessimistic note, what are you looking forward to about this week? They're, they're playing the St. Louis Cardinals for the first time this year. Well, I think what you look forward to is that the pitching will not stay this way. I mean, it, it, in fact, it'll be better and it'll likely be a lot better. So they're 10 and eight right now with this anomalous on um, anomalously bad pitching. So when the pitching gets to, you know, comes back to the norm where it should be, they do have a good lineup, so I'm excited about that. You know, better days are on the horizon. They're 10 and 8 with, with, you know, something going really badly that should go well. When that thing starts to go well, I'm encouraged about where they could go. Um, and I do want to see uh, – it's as much a philosophical exercise as anything else. I want to see if they keep running this guy out there every fifth day. I, I just oh, – above and beyond the wins and losses – I want to see how much longer they could they could play this charade and, and keep trotting this guy out there. I'm just curious to see how that plays out. So that's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> how about you, Mike? I'm with Rich, uh, but I'll, I'll 
I'll I'll speak of the offense real quickly uh, because they're making this uh, a somewhat fun, funky start. Uh, they're middle of the pack, middle third in, in slugging and OPS and home runs. Uh, but, you know, they're first in stolen bases, which first tells me that they're, they're not a static offense. Middle of the pack power and runs scored. But they're top five. I, I need to say they're top five in runs scored and team average and, open and on base percentage and total bases. Uh, in other words, you know, they're featuring a, a varied offense that's not dependent on the home run. Uh, and that's what's kept them afloat all this time, you know, and, and made up for uh, the pitching's, uh, pitching staff's shortcomings. So in that respect, uh, it's been fun. Hey, offense is fun. You know, what, what, what can we say? And we've seen a, a, a number of comebacks already this year. So, you know, we're 10-8. and eight. We're in second place. We're in the mix. Uh, and I'll bring back the old saying: You can't win pennants in April, but you, sure, you certainly can can lose them. So uh, it, it's okay. It's April 18th. You know, it's okay. We need we we need to see more. Uh, this way, we we can start defining real trends and, and see where this takes us. I'll tell you one thing, guys. I don't want to see 15 and 8 anymore. I I I'm I much rather, weirdly enough. This this you know easy creeping way that we we're we're staying afloat we're staying winning and we'll we'll continue hopefully to win but like you know uh, it, it, there's something there's a bad omen about going 15 and eight My, mind you obviously 2015 uh, uh, went well but last year we were 15 and eight after April just like we were in 2015 and 2015. It wasn't until the end of July that we really had some good feelings once more. And last year, we never had any good feelings until maybe September, you could say. So I, I'm, I'm liking the way that the Mets are putting together this record. I wish they had held a little stronger in Philadelphia and Atlanta uh, as well. Um, and, and Saturday night was a perfect example of how, how – a, a pitcher can completely stall momentum. How Jason Vargas in the first inning alone, I know that a lot of the other starting pitchers have done poorly, but Jason Vargas is the giant 1,600-pound gorilla in the room that I just don't want to affect anything with his wavy curls uh, of, of hair anymore. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> let's but, hey, the worst headline I've ever seen was Jason Vargas will start in place of Jacob deGrom. I was just like, this got to be up there with, like, top five current nightmares of, for, Mets to, for Met fans to see. But um, we, we, it's almost 1030. We got uh, some other things. We're getting back to episode numbers. I know we've had a lot of episodes, more than uh, uh, 22 but we like to have our regular episode numbers, and then we also like to have our specials. And, guys, we're back in the regular season groove, and I'm glad that we're getting back to number 22. We have um, – we, 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 we started uh, the numbers with, with 22 and, and uh, Adam speaking about it, but I am about to look up the 1922 Brooklyn Dodgers 
before we get to the, the, the meat of the, uh, the subject. And the 1922 Brooklyn Robins were 76 and 78, finishing sixth in the National League. Um, and uh, Mike, while I look up their uh, Manhattan counterparts, why don't you take it away? I can't, bro. I am unprepared for that. That wasn't in the script, man. Forget that. I'm just going <laughs> to call know, it a night on that. Sorry. <laughs> You know, you know how we do this until until 1962. You know that's how it is. But I will say that the 1922 New York Giants, uh, as uh, many of us know, won the World Series 93-61, finishing first in the National League, and and it was the last year that the New York Yankees uh, uh, shared a house with them. And and, and Rich, there was a big shift in in the power structure in 1923. Obviously, we were not there yet. But, 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 sorry, sorry, I, I, I skipped off there. This was the last year that the Giants owned New York. Yeah, it really was. You know, then the Yankee dominance started to kick in after that. And, um, and I still, the thing that, what, like when we've done the years, the thing that always stands out to me is the attendance figures and how, how relatively low they are. I don't have it in front of me, but I think typically they were drawing, what, a couple hundred thousand a year. And, yeah. um, and now, now you're getting, what, three million is that? Well, three million is a good year, but when the Mets are drawing 2.2, 2.3, that's considered a bad year. And, and back then there would be, you know, total attendance would be like three or 400,000 for the season. Just the scale of everything is so different now. Well, it, this must have been like one of the one. closest. Who who knows exactly how uh, close anybody before 1923 got to a million? But you know, obviously the the Polo Grounds was massive. They had a lot of seats, and they had 945,809, which was first of eight. And my guess is going to the 1922 New York Yankees. Oh. The Yankees of 1922, and this is probably a big reason why they wanted their own house, had 1,026,134 first in the American League. And I think that, that says go. it all about uh, what, why they wanted to not be the, uh, uh, have the Giants be their landlord anymore. Um, number 22 in Mets history, this is – for for any of any of you who are new to a Metsian podcast, we love to to go through Mets history based off the uniform number that correlates to the episode number. And today we're on uh, episode number twenty two. There's some real gems here, fellas. I I uh, what jumps out to me is Don Clendenin, who was uh, a big trade acquisition in 1969 that helped put them over the edge. You could almost say that he was the Johannes Cespedes of the 1969 season. Um, I, Mike Jorgensen, I hear that name all the time. And you get, you guys will be able to speak uh, more to, to Mike Jorgensen. Uh, Bobby Valentine is on this list. Rain Knight has to definitely be listed up there as one of the, the fan favorite number 22s. Kevin McReynolds, maybe not a fan favorite or a clubhouse favorite, but uh, he was still uh, one of the best, uh, offensive Mets to, to uh, that. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm jumbling over Kevin McReynolds, but maybe he deserves that. Uh, Brett Butler is on this list. Uh, that's a name that we all know. Uh, Al Leiter, Royce Ring, 
Uh, Adam mentioned Michael Tucker, a very memorable New York Met. Jose Valentin uh, for the 2007 season. Maybe that's what went wrong. Ramon Martinez. Uh, I don't, and, and that's definitely not the Ramon Martinez, who's Pedro Martinez's brother, I don't believe. And getting to, to my, you know, the era that I've mostly taken in, Raul Valdez, Willie Harris, Eric Young, Kevin Plavecki, Tom Goodwin, and Dominic Smith. Fellas, who do you want to talk about first? Rich. Well, I'm going to leave some for Mike but, um, or, and you, Sam, but I'll, I'll just pick a couple here at random. Um, I'll, you know, I'm going to go to Ray Knight first. I'll do maybe three. Ray Knight. What I think about when I think about Ray Knight is obviously MVP of the 86 World Series. Mets got him in 1984, I believe it was. And, um, yeah, 1984. He, had, he was the heir to Pete Rose, and he always had that hanging over him, you know. And he wasn't as accepted in Cincinnati as he could have been. He was a very good hitter, very good player, but he took over for Pete Rose. And so he had that following him around, and when, uh, then he went to Houston, and the Mets got him. And he brought that fire, that toughness that I, I will say don't believe they would have won the World Series without him. Um, the fact that he was allowed to go to Baltimore after the 86 season, you know, who knows what the hell happened there. But, um, but thank you to Ray Knight, even though he, he used to do national games. I think he, he actually doesn't do that anymore. But until this year, he was doing pre and post for the Nationals. Uh, but all sins are forgiven, Ray, because, you know, without you, the Mets would not have won the 86 World Series, in my opinion. So I'll talk about Ray. Um, and then, you know, Al Leiter, um, Yankee, became a Met, went back to the Yankees. Now he's back in the Mets organization, thank goodness. And when I think about Al Leiter, all you could think about was that one game playing in Cincinnati. Complete game shutout, um, just amazing performance. And so, you know, Al Leiter gave the Mets what was an, a very nice October run there. It didn't end the way we wanted it to. But he pitched them into the postseason in that one-game play-in. So, uh, Al Leiter there. Um, and I, I can't do this without talking about my main man, Eric Young. You know, yeah, Eric Young was someone who didn't get on base enough to use that amazing speed, but he was a, a good guy, and uh, the fans seemed to like him. The players seemed to like him. And uh, he led the league in stolen bases in 19. 19- in uh, 2000, I believe it was 2013 with the Mets. So they got him in 13. So maybe it was 13. It was 13. Ended up leading the league in stolen bases. Um, you know, again, it's a shame a guy like that didn't get on base enough to use his speed. But I was a huge Eric Young fan. So those are the guys I'll, I'll point out. You know, going going with Ray Knight, he's always talked about how, unfortunately, they just didn't seem to want to bring him back and that the negotiations kind of just fell apart. You know, he, he talks like he always wanted to stay with the Mets. I remember that I believe it was game three against the Nationals in September uh, uh, where I was down there, and he was very playful. And I think I said something like, I see you're, you're, you're showing that ring off, Ray. And he, he gave me a big smile and, and, and showed, you know, showed his hand uh, about it. So Ray, Ray Knight, I, I have a, a special place in my heart because of that memory and, of course, uh, of Game 6 of the 1986 World Series on replay. Um, Mike, take it away. 
as opposed to the way Ray Knight left the Mets, I'll cycle back to the way he came to the Mets. Uh, they were already a strong team, but they started accumulating guys to the bench like Tim Tuffle and, and Ray Knight and Tom Petrarch, all, all Stratomatic guys that had good years, you know, and you're like, how the hell are we getting all these guys? And that's when I knew, oh, man, these guys are on to something special here. Uh, which leads me to Kevin McReynolds. You know, he was supposed to be the the, the finishing piece to a dynasty that never was. Uh, what are you going to do about that? Al Leiter is, I, I think, one of the most underrated Mets uh, in franchise history. I don't think he gets enough credit, uh, even by me sometimes. I know he was a very passionate Met, but, you know, he was the best we had, and he did the best he could. And I respect him for that. Xavier Nady, I grew an instant liking to him, and I was so disappointed when we traded him midseason. Uh, and you know what? His career never actually panned out. But uh, in that season, 2000, 2006, uh, big fan of his. Big fan of his uh, immediately upon his acquisition. Uh, as a matter of fact, me and, my, me and my son had a lot of fun over that because he used to just rip him. My son's a Yankee fan. He had a lot of fun. Uh, J.J. Putz, one of those, uh, what what can you say, unfortunate acquisitions. You know, we thought he was actually going to help. Uh, unlike Donna Sanchez, you know, he was the answer to Donna Sanchez. And, again, that blew up in our face. So uh, if there's any more names on the list, by all means, take it away, Sam. Well, I have to loop back around to Al Leiter and kind of like he he always had this like angry look on his face, like in a good way. And, and I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Like like as he was like he was storming off the field, like like just collecting all the information that he needed for the next inning and, and how he needed to attack uh the the opposition it, it was it was a real joy watching him pitch one way or the other um and, and it kind of reminds me in some fashion of Steven Matz except in 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 a, in a a better way it, you know he 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 obviously had it a little bit more together um Willie Harris my uh my cousin is Dustin Harris my uh, uncle is Stan Harris and my aunt is Barbara Harris, and they are collectively Met fans, and they would refer to him as Cousin Willie, which I always got a kick out of. Um, and Dominic Smith, uh, I, I, I've been waiting for Dominic Smith to, to break out, and he's more or less doing it a little bit this season. Uh, I, I don't know how he didn't get thrown out the other day, when he slammed his helmet on on home plate, you guys remember that. And and um, it, it, it 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 what was really funny was that in like at the end of the ninth inning, I tweeted out, I could really use a Dominic Smith home run tonight, and I was hoping that would be you know will him to hit a home run. Unfortunately, he you know hit a home run with his helmet into the the home plate and it didn't work. Um, I got to go back to Don Clendenin here. I know this is just a little bit before your, your guys' time, but all you ever hear uh, people who speak of 1969 was that he was the slugger they were looking for. They, they didn't have much offense. They didn't have much 
uh, power offense in that lineup. And uh, looking here in 1969, he got 202 at-bats with the New York Mets, 72 games, hit 12 home runs and 37 RBIs with a 252 batting average. And it, it's kind of, it sounds pedestrian, but all, all Met fans talked about was how he put them over the, the edge for 1969. He ended up hitting 288 with the Mets in 1970. Obviously, things didn't pan out, but, you know, for, for the Met fan up till that point, 288 with 22 home runs and 97 RBIs, you know, that was unheard of when it came to the New York Mets offense. So that um, you got to give credit where credit's due to Don Clendenin. He, they, will, they will always talk about him when talking about the 1969 New York Mets. And obviously we are going to be celebrating the 50th. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary this year. Um, and I, I think that, that does it for me guys with, with uh, the 22 um, and uh I think that brings us to our last word. Uh, once more, thank you to Adam Spiegel, our uh, theme song composer, for for coming on the show and talking Mets with us. But uh, without further ado, I will throw it over to Mike first for his last word. Copacetic. I know things looked a little, you know, messy at the moment with the pitching and the defense. Uh, but, hey, I'm copacetic with it, you know. New faces, culture changed. I'm giving it all a chance. And like I said, we're competing. Uh, I like this team. They'll straighten it out, I hope. I'm being optimistic. So I'm copacetic. I'm, I'm in a good spot. I'll play good cup this week. <laughs> nice. Uh, Rich? Mine is determined. You know, I'm not um, happy with the way the series in Philadelphia went. The, the Tuesday game was ugly. The Wednesday game was highly disappointing. So, I'd like to get, I can't wait to get things started again on, um, on Friday night. And you're just determined to wash that bad taste out of my mouth because I don't think it's, it's the norm for this year. I, I really do have high hopes for this team. So let, let's get on the field. Let's get some wins. You know, let's wash that, that series in Philly away. And um, yeah, and I think there's a lot to be excited about. And so in a very determined way, I want to see them get on the field and start, and start doing what they should do, which is winning some ball games. My last word is settling in. Uh, baseball is here. April seventeenth always seems to be the, the the time that all of a sudden it's not new anymore. Over ten percent has has gone uh, past for the season, and here we are settling into another baseball year and. I know that I have a lot of distractions out there, but I'm happy that baseball is back yet again to distract me. And, uh, and happy, as bel- always, happy thank- belated Jackie Robinson Day. And a happy belated Jackie Robinson Day. You can't mention the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, in April without thinking about Jackie Robinson. So thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. And also, uh, just want to reiterate, I know that you were saying copacetic, but we we always plead proper uh, proper honor of Joan Payson and let's get Gil Hodges into the Hall of Fame. This is the home stretch for yet again another Veterans Committee to vote next year. Put Gil Hodges in the Hall. He is forget about even even Gil Hodges Jr. on opening day talked about 
how his managerial career doesn't necessarily do it because he didn't have a, he didn't have the the time to be able to show what he could really do as a manager. But you look at his offensive numbers, it compares to his contemporaries who are already in the hall. What I have heard a lot of times was that one of the reasons they didn't put Gil Hodges in the Hall of Fame was because they kept putting Dodgers in the Hall of Fame and they said to themselves, you cannot, well, we, we, you know, we can't put them all in. Yeah, you can put them all in if they're all Hall of Fame worthy. And at that point, he was up there with the, some of the best first basemen of all time. Gil Hodges should be representing his era in the Hall of Fame. And the fact that not one New York Met from 1969 talks ill of this guy and they say they couldn't have done it without him puts him over the edge in my book. And hopefully they will right the wrong that many, many years have it has taken to get to this point. And I think more now more than ever, I think the, the Veterans Committee uh, uh, environment is proper to get Gil Hodges into the Hall of Fame. And, and that's basically my, the, the end of the podcast rant for me. Uh, and the only thing left to say, gentlemen, is Rich. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets, everybody. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Adam Spiegel. Have a good one, everybody. Take care. Good night, gentlemen.